0: Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the no Cellicast podcast, hosted at Podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Monday, May 20th, 2019, and this is show number 732. Well, hey, thanks for waiting for me for a day. We went off to see, uh, a, go to a little graduation party for Steve's nephew. Just an excuse to see the family, and I appreciate you waiting until Monday for the show. I want to give a shout out to a listener who goes by Dat Guy on Twitter. Today, he tweeted me a note. Uh, actually, I think it was yesterday. He tweeted me a note that said, I've been enjoying programming by stealth, but I was surprised to find a gap in the feed. Did you know that 21 to 29 are missing? Well, while I'm delighted that Dat Guy is d- enjoying the show, I was surprised to see that the episodes had indeed disappeared from the feed. They're all up on podfeed.com, uh, you know, the episodes are actually all there, and for the life of me, I have no idea how they got deleted from the PBS RSS feed. It took me a while to recreate the entries, but it is kind of weird that they all wandered off. If you're signed up for the PodFeed Press, which you totally should be, it's a newsletter that comes out whenever I post a podcast episode. I think there's actually a link at podfeed.com right at the top to sign up for it if you like it. Anyway, um, whenever I post a podcast episode, it sends out an episode or an installment, a newsletter of the PodFeed Press. I'm pretty sure that me recreating these nine items in the feed will cause you to get nine uh, separate newsletters. I did warn the PodFeed Press subscribers because I hate the idea of spamming people unnecessarily. When I did that, I got a lovely note back from a gentleman named John McNeely as a result. He wrote, Dear Allison, any email from you is a welcome email. Thanks for the heads up. Best wishes, John. Isn't that sweet? That made my day. Well, I also tweeted, Facebooked, and slacked out that you may suddenly see nine episodes of Programming by Stealth in your podcast feed, but they'll be dated late 2016 and late and early 2017. By the way, I did all of this on a road trip, the road trip I was just talking about from visiting Steve's family for the weekend. When I got home, I tweeted at that guy to tell him I had it all fixed. And right before showtime, he said, Oh, yeah, guess what? Episodes 31 to 34 are missing, too. So I guess you'll be seeing a few more messages from me about this. Speaking of Programming by Stealth, Chit Chat Across the Pond this week was Programming by Stealth Installment 78. Last week's challenge was really fun. Bart asked us to build a game with very little guidance. The basic idea was our game was to have our program get a random number from a tool on Bart's website and then let the user of this little game try to guess what that number is. The constraints were pretty wide open and we started with a blank screen, which was really scary. I mean, like a blank sheet of paper, but a blank screen, nothing on it, had to write it all from scratch. I had a total blast writing mine and Bart really enjoyed watching me as I sent him cooler updates over the two weeks. Bart had an equally good time writing his own and even let me make suggestions for improvement on his throughout the week. In this week's week's installment of Programming by Stealth, Bart takes us through that challenge solution, not in a detailed step-by-step method, but instead he went through some major structural ways that he created his code. He digs deep enough to explain why he did each thing, but it's a great lesson on building code that's easier to debug and, to be honest, more fun to write. As I suggested improvements to his code, he decided he needed to use a component called Bootstrap Popovers. In this episode, he walks us through how they work, and I have to say, they're pretty slick. I was excited to go to a website after listening to this episode, and I uh, just found on another website I could definitely see it was a Bootstrap Popover somebody was using. Anyway, after he teaches us about Bootstrap Popovers, he introduces us to a super intuitive JavaScript library called Is.js. That solves just completely simplifies our code. I asked Bart, "Could you back up two weeks and show me is.js before I did last week's homework?" Anyway, as always, Bart's awesome tutorial show notes are available at bartbouchatz.ie, and the link to all of that is in the show notes along with the audio feed. And you can find this in your podcatcher of choice under Chit Chat Across the Pond or Programming by Stealth. I've had something itching at the back of my brain that I feel compelled to talk about. I'm finding it fascinating how differently companies, tech companies in particular, are characterized depending on the emotions of the day. My thoughts on this started to take form when on MacBreak Weekly, Leo Laporte, Andy Anatko, and Renee Ritchie were talking about the fiasco that is the folding Samsung phone. Before the phones were ever in the hands of reviewers, on MacBreak Weekly and also on Twitter, all participants were talking about how exciting this whole idea of folding phones was, how it was true innovation how it was courageous, how excited they were to get their hands on these phones. Now, while they mentioned that the phones would cost $2,000, they had no discussion about how elitist this phone would be. No one said that Samsung should come out with an affordable version. These same panelists say this all the time about Apple phones. But with Samsung's folding phone, they only talked about how excited they were about this new technology. Personally, I didn't even feel they made a compelling argument about this problem this technology would solve. But you know what, I'm not a big thinker, I don't see the future very well, so maybe it is exciting. When the news came that the Samsung Galaxy Fold was actually breaking in the first week of use by many reviewers, the reaction by pundits was, to be honest, simply bizarre. On MacBreak Weekly, Leo asked the oddest question of his panelists. He said, don't you feel sorry for Samsung? Similarly, on Tech News Weekly, Jason Howell, in reference to the Fold fiasco, said, Samsung can't catch a break. I find both of these questions baffling. Why would you feel sorry for a company making a $2000 product that breaks in the first week? It turns out that making high-quality hardware with good design is really, really hard. It takes a lot of engineers, a long time, and a lot of effort to make something work reliably. It takes good testing to push the edge conditions to see what happens takes an enormous effort by quality control engineers to put the controls in place to ensure reliable manufacturing practices. These things do not happen by luck. They don't happen because of goodwill. They happen because of robust engineering and manufacturing discipline. Feeling sorry for a company for making a terrible product that fails so quickly makes no sense at all to me. I think it's also interesting that in this particular story, Empathy is being directed towards the very same company who designed and produced a phone that caught on fire in normal use. The same company then re-released the same phone and that one caught on fire as well. Can't catch a break? No. The answer is that they have repeatedly failed at good design and manufacturing processes. None of this happens by accident. I'm going to say it again. It happens by design. If you've been listening to me for any length of time, you know two things. I have an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Second, I had a dreadful experience working with Samsung on a quality and process issue probably 20 years ago that left a lasting impression on me about that particular company. It could be suggested that if you combine these two facts, Allison may have taken great joy when Samsung's phones exploded and broke when folded. I will grant you that there's probably a bit of truth in that. But I'll also grant that those two facts caused me to not be surprised when these failures happen. When I had that problem with Samsung, I spoke to nine separate people, wrote two letters to the CEO, and in five months, it cost me $50 to never get a functioning monitor from that company. It was clear to me that there was an endemic lack of process in the company that went up and down the chain of command. Not one person I dealt with did what they said they were going to do, down to the very last person who sent my refund check, less the $50 shipping that I lost, to the wrong address. But let's pretend you didn't know all this about me and the inherently bad communication and accountability within Samsung. Should you feel sorry for any company when they produce a bad product or make a huge mistake? Did anyone on any podcast or blog or TV show express empathy for Apple when they had that critical bug in High Sierra that allows someone to log into a Mac using root as the login and an empty password field if they click the login button often enough? No, they did not express sorrow for Apple. They roasted them alive. I'm not saying Apple should have gotten a pass either. That was a giant, stupid, awful bug that put our security at risk and they should have been called to, to task for that. I did not feel sorry for them at all. Do I feel sorry for Apple for making a keyboard that so many pundits dislike? Nope. I wish they'd make a better keyboard. I think it would be in their best interest to do so. I think they had a vision of what could be better. They weighed the trade-offs and they bet the wrong way on how people would view those trade-offs. But I definitely don't feel sorry for them for making the wrong decision. I remember hearing someone years ago explain that there's a natural human condition that makes us want to knock the top dog off the top of the heap. I think that's part of this. While Apple doesn't have the top market share by a long shot, they do make most of the money and they seem to still be winning the mind share of what's cool to own. So yeah, I do have an ever so slight Apple bias, but I still think it makes no sense to feel sorry for a company when they make giant mistakes. I expect that this diatribe will backfire one day when I say I feel sorry for Apple about something, and I'm also glad to know that you will be there to call me on it when it happens. (sighs) Glad I got that off my chest. I feel better now. Last week, I mentioned that I'd like to create a little segment that will probably go on for quite some time that I'm calling Tesla Tech. I'm hoping in little bite-sized chunks I can explain the technology of this car that I find intriguing, helpful, or annoying. I'm going to try to focus on a small area each time I do one of these segments. This going to be hard because I really want to tell you everything it can do, but I figure that would probably bore you if I did that. I thought this week we would start with the Tesla app, which lets you do a surprising amount of things with the car. Before delivery of my car, the app the app was really frustrating. It just showed me an image of the car and told me, that's the one you're getting, but nothing more. 15 minutes before delivery, though, I could see everything about the car. Here's the crazy thing. With the Model 3, there's no key fob. Your phone is your key. You walk up to the car with your phone, and it automatically unlocks. When you walk away with your phone, the car automatically locks, gives you a quick beep to know, let you know it's locked. I think the lights might flash as well. While this feature seems very handy, it got me to thinking that if I lost my phone, someone could steal my car. But then I realized with my previous Acura TL, when I walked up with my keys and purse uh, in my purse, my car unlocked with those too. So losing keys, losing the phone, exact same level of risk. However, Tesla has automatic tracking so you can tell the police where to find your car if someone steals it. That can only be circumvented by thieves if they disable mobile access. But Tesla pushed out an update recently that requires a username and password to disable mobile access. So I guess I can sleep easier with the new car. Both Steve and I have paired our phones with the car as keys so either one of us can drive without having to carry keys. That's really swell. The app lets me unlock the car, which I guess could be helpful if I was, say, too lazy to let get something out of the car at night and wanted to go send one of my kids to go get it. You know how you make the kid fetch the remote so you don't have to get out of your easy chair to change the channel? They also give you two key cards. These are simply black cards that say Tesla on them. Obviously, if you're loaning your car to someone, I'm not sure who I trust my Tesla with just yet, or let's say using a valet, you would give them one of these key cards. To enter the car, you tap the card on the pillar between the front and rear windows, right under one of the embedded cameras. Then to enable the car to start, you place that card between the front of the center console and the the cup holders. It's a pretty slick design on how you use this little card. It's way easier to keep a card as thin as a credit card in my wallet than carrying a giant key fob. Now, if you want a key fob, you can buy them. They look like a tiny version of your model car, and you press on the front trunk to open the car. They're really adorable, but I don't want to care any more than I have to these days, so I'm probably not going to get a key fob. By the way, I said that the phone always unlocks the car, but while we were on our recent road trip, a couple of times I tried to open the car with my phone, and it didn't actually work, and I don't know why. I tried a couple of times to open the door, and it wouldn't open, but I was able to use the key card, so I think I will keep that key card with me. From the home screen, I can see, of the app I'm talking about, I can see how many miles of charge are available, and it tells me the car is parked. I can turn on the car's climate control, open the trunk, and even open the front trunk. Since there's no engine to play with on the Teslas, opening the front hood reveals the front trunk, which is sometimes called the frunk. I want to mention that the Acura TL I drove was 8 inches longer and an inch wider than the Model 3, but the Model 3 actually has more storage space. When you look at that front trunk, it looks really small, but I was able to put a, a, a large carry-on luggage uh, in there and two bottles of wine, and I had room for more uh, stuff in there, room for more wine, but that's all I had. Anyway, on the, uh, on the app, on the controls page, you get some of the same things you see on the home screen, like unlocking the car and opening the front, but you can also open the trunk. Now, why wouldn't the trunk be on the home screen instead of the front? I'm not really sure why, but for some reason, the trunk is only on the control screen and the front is on the the main screen. Don't know why. You can also remotely flash your lights or honk your horn, which would be super handy if you've been wandering around the Disneyland parking structure for an hour, swearing you were on Goofy 3B, but can't find your car. You can also start your car via the app, which at first kind of confused me. You see, you don't really start the Model 3. When you get into the car with your phone, the Bottle 3 touchscreen is lit up, the climate controls have come on automatically, and if you had music playing when you got out, it's playing again. You then just put the car in reverse or drive, and it goes. I asked Rod Simmons what that button in the app was for, and he suggested a scenario where I'm out and about, and I lost my phone and my wallet with my key card. In that scenario, I could have Steve use the app to first unlock the car and then start the car for me. We ran an experiment to test out how this works. I gave Steve my phone when we were far from the car. I walked up to the car. He honked the horn and flashed the lights just to, you know, for fun. Kind of scared me. Anyway, then he unlocked the car for me. I was able to open the door and the car felt like it was ready to go. The display was on. The climate control had kicked in. But there was an animation on screen showing me how to use the key card to start the car. It knew I didn't have my phone. At this point, following elaborate hand signals we had prearranged, Steve took the next step of asking the app to start the car. At this point, he was asked to authenticate with our Tesla account. In settings, he had previously enabled Face ID, so he didn't have to type in anything. On his screen, he saw a tiny countdown from two minutes, letting us know this feature wouldn't just leave the car vulnerable indefinitely. On the screen in the car, I simply saw the animation about using the key card vanish when when he started the car. That let me know I could simply drive away. Pretty darn cool. The only thing I would have to figure out is how I would contact Steve to do all of this if I'd lost my phone. Speaking of allowing someone else to drive your car, there is a valet mode. This is so cool. When you hand over your car to a valet, don't you always think in the back of your mind that they're probably racing around in it like a teenager? With valet mode enabled on the Model 3, speed is limited to 70 miles per hour, max acceleration and power are limited, the frunk and the glove box are locked, home and work locations are not available from navigation, voice commands and autopilot features are disabled, and they can't mess with that mobile access setting we talked about for Thieves. They also can't view paired phone data or pair a new new phone. All of these features are locked out with a four-digit pin that you set each time you enable valet mode. Here's another thing I thought, I've thought i thought about is when you give a valet the key to your car, you keep your registration in the glove box, right? Well, now they've got the keys to your car, probably the, possibly the keys to your house if they're on the same key ring. They've got your car that's telling them in the glove box where you live and they know you're not home. Well, with valet mode on the Model 3, they can't get into the glove box. So, you know, they also also don't have any of the keys to my house because all they have is that little card. So I'm feeling even safer. Next up is sentry mode, and it's pretty fun too. With sentry mode, the car monitors its surroundings when it's locked and parked. According to the manual, if a potential threat is detected, like someone leaning on your car, the cameras will begin recording, the alarm system will activate, and an alert will come on to our phones in the Tesla app, notifying us that an incident has occurred. I had the wheels chained out, changed out for cooler third-party wheels, and I had Sentry mode enabled while the guys were working on the car. Maybe it was because I was nearby, but the alarm system did not activate, nor did I get any notifications. However, the lights would flash from time to time, and the display inside the car showed a very Hal 9000-looking red camera lens and the words Sentry activated and recording on screen in a very threatening manner. The, the recording text might be kind of a lie. If you put a thumb drive into one of the front USB ports, it will record, but I haven't done that, so I think it was just bluffing. I also discovered in Pokemon that you, set, uh, that you can set sentry mode to not enable when your car is at your house. I know this is a teeny detail, but the OwlCam dashcam I told you about recently was constantly sending me alerts when my car was in the garage. I go out to get a soda from the back fridge and I get this alert from my all cam going, oh my God, there's somebody near your car. Having this entry mode feature on the Model 3 automatically turn off when at home is much more peaceful. However, on this trip, we discovered that if your car battery goes below 20%, you will start getting notifications constantly telling you that that uh, sentry mode is no longer working because they don't want to run your battery down running sentry mode. So we got alert, alert, alert. I mean, they must have said 15 of them in a row before we're like, okay, heard ya. Well, there might be someone in my house who perhaps on some occasions, only under extreme circumstance, might like to drive well over the speed limit. I was excited to find a speed limit mode available to me in the app that might allow me to rein that person in. I set a top speed limit that was higher than I like to drive on the freeway, but it would be a victory if I could get that other person to stay beneath this number. When I enabled it, it asked me for a pin, which I did not share with the other person in my house. According to the manual, I know it's weird, I've been reading the manual, it says, if the driver gets within 3 miles per hour of the max speed set, a chime will sound and text appears notifying the driver that they're in the danger zone. I was super excited about this. However. I turned off speed limit on day one, and it turns out (laughs) I turned it off on day one, because it turns out that if in the app you enable speed limit mode, it also changes the acceleration capability of the car. The Model 3 has two modes for acceleration, standard, which I call rocket ship mode, and chill, which I call little old lady mode. While I am a little old lady, I loved accelerating this car. It accelerates from 0 to 60 in 3.2 seconds. I found a website that lists how fast all all kinds of cars go 0 to 60. There's a Bugatti that's not that fast. One of them's faster. Anyway, I don't like to speed, but I do love to accelerate. I didn't pay extra for the performance model just to drive like I have a regular car. I suppose I could enable speed limit mode when that other person is driving. I hope Kevin doesn't tell the unnamed person about this. Well, another fun option is to turn on climate control in the car via the Tesla app. It allows you to set a specific temperature for the interior. I can see this is super useful if you live in a frigid place like, I don't know, Ontario, Canada, or a sweaty place like Orlando, Florida, and you want to get the car comfy before you get in. California's temperatures are pretty moderate, so it won't be terribly useful to me, but for most people, I think it would be awesome. I have to confess I know very little about charging so far, or I did before this recent trip. Or I didn't before this recent trip, I guess I should say you think that would be at the top of my list with an electric vehicle, but since my previous car, I only drove an average of 4,000 miles per year, gassing up or charging is not actually on the top of my priority list. I pro- I promise to learn, learn a lot more about it over time. One thing Josh, my delivery specialist at Tesla, did show me was that in the app you could drag a little slider to show how much you want to charge. They recommend that you drag the little line to 90% of max charge if you're just tooling around town and will be charging often. But if you want to go on a trip, you drag that bad boy up to 100%. We did that for this recent trip. The same screen shows you nearby superchargers. These are the ones made for Teslas to deliver maximum power. You can even see how many superchargers are at each location and how many are open and available. Sometimes that's a lie, as we found out. On a recent trip, we saw that there were two open at this particular one in Burbank, and when we got there, we found that they were open because they were broken. There are other apps that give you more information on, on what's open and what's broken, so we might have to lean on some of those. Anyway, when you're in the app, tapping on a charger caused something that I didn't understand at first. It said, sent shared location to Podfeet. I was like, uh, hang on, I don't understand. I am Podfeet, but then again, I named the car Podfeet. It turns up in the car, it actually sent that location to the car and set it up to navigate right to it. Anyway, like I said, I don't know a lot about charging yet, but we'll get into that later. Now, it's not good enough that Google and Waze know where I am at all times and that Find Friends allows my family and friends to track me at all times. Now, my car is telling Steve where I am too. On the main screen, there's a section that says location and in smaller letters shows the exact address of my car. Tapping on location shows the car in a map zoomed out a bit and you can enable satellite view. But then there's a target that, when tapped, shows you a really precise location. I mean, this is so precise it shows on which side of my house the garage is located. I can't get away with nothing anymore. I did get lost when we were at the mall uh, while the car was charging today And uh, I got lost, and I realized in the Tesla app I could find my car, though. So maybe it is handy. Well, there's a terrifying feature available in the Tesla app. It's called Summon. According to the manual, uh, one can use Summon to pull your car into a parking spot and back out. There are over two pages of instructions with quite a few red warning sections to read. Things like, it can't see bicycles because they're too skinny, While it will avoid objects, it will go back onto the same path it started on. So the space can't be too narrow. You have to teach it how far away from the garage wall you want it to go. There's a lot of warnings. You can also ask the car to come to you with summon. You can get it to drive up to 39 feet. How the heck does that work? I really want to try this out. And at the same time, I'm absolutely terrified of trying it. We'll let you know if we ever got up our nerve to give this a try. I stumbled across an article on a website called Electrek.co, that's E-L-E-C-T-R-E-K.co, that told me that Tesla had added Siri integration in the latest version of the app. I tested the tips in the article. I can use Siri to see if my car is locked and then lock or unlock it. I can flash the lights or honk the horn. Again, a good way to find your car in a giant parking lot. Using your voice, you can even ask where the heck your car is and view the location information from the app, And you can ask her how much charge there is in your car. I'm not sure I'm going to need these features, but it's still high-tech, so it's fun. Finally, there's one setting I wanted to tell you about. On my Acura TL, they had an option to show a calendar, but it was really dumb. You could create events and such and have them display, but that calendar wasn't synced with anything at all. It was only in the car. In the Model 3 Tesla app, you can enable syncing of all of the calendars from your phone. It's fabulous, actually. I got in the car after I enabled it and the calendar showed me my upcoming chit chat with Bart and a lunch appointment that I'd actually forgotten about. The only downside is we haven't figured out how to get Steve's calendar in there, even though the car does recognize that it's Steve's phone and it's Steve as an identity in terms of like, uh, you know, the way the seat is set up and things like that. Um, but if we, it would be nice if he could get access to his own stuff too. I may say this uh, quite a few more times but this car isn't like other cars at all. The ability to control so many things about the car remotely from an app is just crazy to me. I feel like I jump forward not seven years in the future from my old car, but rather 50 years into some space-age future. And other people I've gotten in the car have said the same thing. It's like, woo, I'm in the future. Anyway, I like writing up these tech notes because it's forcing me to read the manual and touch every single button, except for that scary summon button. I hope you'll enjoy learning along with me. One of the forces behind the NoCillaCast is a lovely listener named Klaus Wolf. Calling him a listener vastly under-describes his contribution level. He emails me a lot and he helps me with things. He contributes in our Slack over at podfeedcom slash Slack. He has recorded listener contributions about PopClip and how do you keep podcasts from filling up our Apple Watches. He even taught us some of his native language one time, Hesich. He has been a guest on Chit Chat Across the Pond, where he tried to convince me of the value of metadata. He is one of the most consistent users of the Amazon affiliate links in Germany. But all of that was not enough for him. He has just become a patron of the PodFeed podcast. He went over to podfeed.com slash Patreon and signed up to contribute a weekly dollar amount to help fund the costs of the show. Personally, I think this is above and beyond the call of duty because of all of his other contributions, but I will graciously accept his financial support as well. I don't expect you to do as much as Klaus. I don't expect Klaus to do as much as Klaus. But if you are looking for an easy way to contribute, please consider becoming a patron of the show like Klaus. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Booth Shots. How are you doing today, Bart?
1: I am doing just fine. Um, now that we actually have the ability for me to hear you and you to hear me
0: at the same time. It's, it, it does turn out it's more fun when it's that way. We had uh, perhaps a little tiny bit of audio problems here. But before we dig in, I want to uh, tell you a little anecdote that I think you will enjoy. Well, it'll be irritating at first, but then you'll like what happened. Okay. Um you know how we all like to yell into our our phones when somebody's wrong on on a podcast, right? Oh
1: god, yeah. That's that's one of the best parts of being a podcast listener. And then you go straight to the Twitter button and then you really have fun and then 2 seconds later they correct themselves and you have to send a little
0: oh, sorry. <laughs> well, I was listening to MacBreak Weekly and Jim Darrymple, was uh, the the subject was what Apple should do about their App Store and whether they should allow people to sideload apps. And one of Darwimple's points I thought he made was really good. He said, um, you know that when they do that, the headlines are going to read, iPhones have malware now, not some idiot sideloaded a piece of crap, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I thought he made a really good point then. But then he said, uh, you know, the uh, Android is completely insecure because Google does nothing to protect the security of Android. And I was just screaming into my phone going, didn't you read the Google report that Bart read to us? <laughs> or any of the stuff from said, Google's developer conference this week. Or, Gah. Yeah, it was complete horsepucky. And, and uh, Andy Anaco tried to argue with him, and, and Rump- Darumple's argument back was, oh, come on. And, and he said it twice, and Andy's like, I can say, oh, come on, too, you know? And then Andy went on to be totally wrong about something else, so I was yelling into my phone about that. But... <laughs> I thought you would really enjoy, I mean, I thought you did make a good point about what would happen if they allowed sideloading, but anyway, I thought you'd like that I was quoting you and yelling into my iPhone about it. Quoting me defending
1: Google. We live in a funny world.
0: (laughs) I know, and you're a Microsoft lover. What is happening to this world?
1: Topsy-turvy, so crazy. (laughs) Didn't get any less crazy this week.
0: All right. Well, we should probably dig in. We got some chewy mediums, don't we?
1: We have three mediums to get stuck into. And to be honest, not too much in the other stuff. I've I've sort of, I think that's sort of how I'm balancing the shows these days, because I think you get the most out of the mediums.
0: Yeah, yeah, I definitely do.
1: Yeah. Okay, so the first medium is the WhatsApp vulnerability, which made all of the media made morning breakfast time radio news that I listen to every morning (laughs) here in Ireland. So it's not often that computers of any form make the RTE 8 o'clock news. Uh, but this one did, and it was right. pretty much everywhere, you know. So WhatsApp, patch immediately, was what everyone was saying in the news, and that is the or version of this story, patch. <laughs> patch, patch, patch. Um. So what happened is that the Financial Times were the first to report that a vulnerability existed in WhatsApp for iOS and Android, and that it was being actively but very selectively exploited against high-value targets Probably by government actors. Ah. Uh, Facebook confirmed that the vulnerability had existed and that it had patched it in the latest version of the app. And therefore, Facebook's recommendation to all users was patch, 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 patch. Uh, Do
0: that. Where have I heard that?
1: (laughs) So the facts are a bit hard to come by on this story. But we can nonetheless say some. Intelligent things that are probably true, most likely to be true. So, we know that whoever was, we're pretty sure that whoever was exploiting this vulnerability was a customer of an Israeli gray hat security company called NSO Group. So, these are the kind of people who sell malware to governments and therefore get the claim that they're not bad guys because they're selling to governments and that makes it all
0: okay. Well, that's where the gray part comes in.
1: Yeah, I call them gray hats, and that's the most generous I'm prepared to be. Uh, <laughs> it's not what I really think, but anyway. So we don't know who these customers are. Um, NSO Group were extremely quick to say, no, no, we don't use our tools. Other people use our tools. It's nothing to do with us. It's like, well, it is something to do with you, but I get what you mean. Okay. Um so basically, you know, they're like Smith & Weston. They sold the gun. They didn't pull the trigger, and they have no idea who would have pulled the trigger. Why would they, right? They they just sold the gun. Um, What we also are pretty sure of from the reporting is that what was installed on the victim devices was a piece of uh, spyware called Pegasus, which is the NSO group's main product. Um, hmm. And one of the things Pegasus does is jailbreak the phone to give full... System slash root level access to whoever takes over the phone. So it's fairly nasty stuff. Now, something like Pegasus can't just go straight into a phone, right? You can't, you can't go straight from there's a vulnerability in WhatsApp to I have jailbroken your phone because apps in iOS are sandboxed. So a vulnerability in WhatsApp would only get an attacker into WhatsApp. So that means that they need to have chained the WhatsApp vulnerability with probably many more vulnerabilities to break through iOS and Android's multi-layers of defense. So what we don't know is whether... So we know... But you can see the WhatsApp vulnerability as the front door. We've no idea how many doors there were behind the front door. And we have no idea how out of date someone's iOS or Android had to be for the attack to get beyond the front door. So for all we know, although every everyone's WhatsApp was vulnerable, maybe they could only actually take over the phone if you were running an out of date version of iOS or Android. We just do not know. We cannot know.
0: Okay. But you've always said that it's the addition of these pieces of malware that start to work together that it's rare that one is uh, you know, a get into jail free card.
1: <laughs> very, very rare. Basically for that to happen, you'd need to find a bug in the actual core OS, in the kernel of the core OS that was somehow directly exposed to the network. And neither Apple nor Google, you know, they, they absolutely minimize that attack surface. So if you hack into an app, which is way more likely, and that is what happened here, then that gets you a toehold. But to do anything, you need to get further. So we don't know how they got further, if they got further. We don't know whether they were able to get further on 50% of devices. We, we just don't know. For all we know, they have a zero day that works against the very, 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 very latest version of iOS. So if they do... Then they can get straight in. I mean, it's, we just don't know, is is I guess what I'm saying.
0: Okay. The other thing,
1: the other thing to bear in mind here is that these kind of zero days are extremely valuable only as long as they remain secret. And that's in our favor as regular users, because it's in the interest of the customers of the NSO group to get to use these kind of high value vulnerabilities for as long as they can, which means they will use them as little as they can against only the highest value targets, because if they were to use oh, them broadly, they will be immediately discovered, fixed, and their amazing access would vanish in, into a puff of patches. So that,
0: from oh, our that's point of view, interesting. is a good
1: thing. If I was a So human- the
0: scarcity... The scarcity of it is its value in that case.
1: Yeah. So if I was a human rights lawyer, that would be absolutely no comfort to me because I would be on that (laughs) list of targets. That's who they were going after here. But as a regular Joe Soap, it is very much of comfort because it's not being widely used. It's only being used in really, really targeted attacks. So I think that's one of the reasons that us regular folks have no need to set our hair on fire. We just need to patch because now that the vulnerability is known about anyone can use it and obviously any bad guy out there the cyber criminal was going to want to use it there's no more keeping it secret because you know it's secret's gone it's now known so its value is gone so everyone is going to attack it as much as they can so patch 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 patch, patch.
0: so if we were if we're a low value target mm-hmm. and we are um we've been obeying uh, the rules that you've set before us and keep our things being patched automatically, Mm -hmm. our our phones, then we had no action to do, we were safe. But part of that is because they they patched it, uh, Facebook patched it before it got announced, right?
1: Yes. So I'm assuming, I didn't see it explicitly stated, but I'm assuming there was responsible disclosure going on here. And I'm assuming that the FT had worked with facebook to arrange the order in which things would happen that it seems unlikely that happened by accident
0: oh okay
1: and that would be kind of normal right like the financial times are not a fly-by-night operation they're going to work with a company like facebook to protect planet earth from this kind of thing right so it, it, it i don't think it's a surprise that, that the ft would be responsible okay okay Good so unless you have any more questions, that's kind of all I think I can say about this whatsapp vulnerability that there's an awful awful lot of unknowns here,
0: yeah, that is interesting that there isn't very much information about it for something that big, but uh okay, good, well, we've got another security medium to uh entertain ourselves,
1: yeah, so the next one um security medium two micro architectural data sampling is not the name it anyone' right following.
0: off the tongue.
1: Right. So that's the official name that Intel have given this collection of vulnerabilities. The name that you're going to see all over the Internet is Zombie Load, because that just sounds cooler. Uh, This is a collection of very, very closely related bugs or not bugs, uh, vulnerabilities in the physical design of the Intel CPUs. Uh, that go by lots of names because there were actually lots of researchers involved in discovering them. So, the names the researchers gave these were RIDL or Riddle, Fallout, and Zombie Load. And for I guess just because it's the coolest of those three names, the one the media have glommed onto is Zombie Load. You're not hearing people talk about Fallout or Riddle.
0: Fallout's pretty good, but Riddle. I, but I mean, uh, sorry. Zombie, zombie load, load. That, that's awesome.
1: That's awesome, yes. Yeah, so that's what everyone's calling it. But if you go to Intel's page and look for zombie load, you're not going to get anywhere. Intel have gone with market micro-architectural data sampling. Meds? Mads? Mads is maddening, I guess. <laughs> um, so this is another collection of bugs related to but not identically the same as Spectre and Meltdown. It It's again about speculative execution. It's about the fact that to make their CPUs perform more efficiently, Intel went down the road of having the CPU just guess what you might do next, doing it anyway, and then rolling back if needed. And every time they guess right, you get a big performance boost, and every time you get wrong, you haven't really lost anything because, well, sure, you know... We weren't holding anything back by just having a guess anyway. So the problem is, as you do these, basically, the CPU is, is is carrying out instructions that it was never really asked to. And it keeps on accidentally leaving side effects lying all over the place. And hmm. that's what was the problem with Spectre and Meltdown. And that's what's the problem here again. And
0: yeah, it's, it's so far. It sounds identical.
1: It, it it is only different in a very small subtlety. Um, Spectre and meltdown were about uh, caches getting left behind, and zombie load is about uh, stacks not being emptied. It's still oh, detritus. Okay. It's just mildly okay. different detritus. So it is very okay. similar. The other way in which it's very similar is that the symptom is that one process can see into the memory belonging to another process if both of them are running on the same core at the same time. In other words, it's oh, yeah. data leakages between processes when they are hyperthreading on the same core.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: And... For a ho- just like with all the Spectrum Meltdowns, so the reason I have never been telling anyone to set their hair on fire about Spectrum Meltdown is that on your home computer, the only processes sharing the same core of your CPU are all yours, right? You are sharing your PC with yourself only. Right. So... If your mail app can see into your browser, that's not ideal. You do kind of, you know, in case there's a bug in Firefox, you want a bit of process isolation. But if there is no process isolation, or if it's a bit leaky, it's not catastrophic end-of-the-world stuff. It's just, well, okay, that shouldn't be. The only way to really get affected by this as a home user is if there's malware running on your computer sharing a core with your not-malware.
0: Well, hang on a (laughs) a sec, there's malware (laughs) running on your computer. Yeah, you got something else to worry about here.
1: Yeah, and there's way easier ways to get your stuff off your computer than this speculative execution stuff. Where this speculative right. execution stuff comes in is in shared systems. So, any sort of system where you have multiple users sharing the same system, and in today's world, that really means cloud computing. So, if you're the operator of a cloud computing platform, well, then each virtual machine is a process from the point of view of the host operating system. If you have data oh, right. leakage between processes, you have data leakages between virtual machines. One of them could belong to me. One of them could belong to you. I really, really, really shouldn't be able to see into your virtual machines.
0: Right, right.
1: So that's catastrophic. And that's and what,
0: again, that's very similar to a spectrum meltdown, yes, right? Yes,
1: exactly the same symptom. So the symptom is the same. okay. Not quite the same. With Spectre and Meltdown, you can control what gets cached, right? But with this zombie load, it's just what happens to be in a buffer. And it's really hard for the attacker to decide what should be in what buffer. So the end result is that the only way this is useful, which is why Intel called it sampling, you basically just have to keep watching until something interesting floats by. You don't get to decide what you spy on. You just get to look through this tiny little peephole in the hope that something of interest will pass you by. So the attacker basically has to sit there and keep watching until a credit card number or a password or a private key until something of value happens to get buffered in the wrong place, and then they can swipe it. So it's the kind of attack where it's great if you if you get you to sit there opportunistically for a couple of days and just, you know, phone home if you find something. But it's terrible to right. have a quick targeted attack. So it's opportunistic rather than targeted, which makes it different to Spectrum meltdown.
0: Less So scary. it might get lucky, but it's not Again, that doesn't sound like hair on fire, does it? It's
1: not hair on fire. So, if you remember, Heartbleed was similar. Heartbleed allowed a random piece of memory to be seen by the attacker. And it, you know, there were successful attacks, but they usually involved the bad guy being in there for a week. And then they happen to see something cool fly by. It's kind of similar right. here. Okay. So, okay. if you're a cloud provider, you obviously do want to take this seriously because what you have against you there is sheer volume right? If you have to keep watching until something interesting flies by, but if you're sharing a server with lots of people doing lots of interesting things, well, then something interesting will fly by. So it's very important that cloud vendors patch this. And actually, cloud vendors have a lot of options here. Option number the first, which is something many cloud vendors have chosen to do since this whole speculative execution thing happened. It all involves processes hyper-threading on the same core. Now hyperthreading gives you double the performance per core, so arguably that's a big, you know, that's a factor of fifty you percent, know, factor of fifty percent, twice as fast. Well, if you turn off hyperthreading, all of these vulnerabilities just vanish because there's nothing sharing a core with anything else, and a lot of but cloud a factor too
0: is significant,
1: right? Yeah, that's, but you that's, just that's turn,
0: not a teeny little thing.
1: But it's not a teeny little thing if you're a cloud provider and you have government contracts worth millions and millions and millions. Yeah. you know, hardware <laughs> is cheap. So there are cloud right, providers, who But it's not just... the
0: cost of it's it's not the cost of the hardware that that has basically that's round off error in the cost of running a computing center.
1: Right, exactly. Which is why a lot of large providers have simply chosen to disable hyper
0: no no you're missing my point i'm saying i'm saying that that the cost of the hardware is not what costs you more when you add a lot more computers you add more operating systems more things to be patched more sysadmins more heat more electricity it's it's not just cheaper to say well i'll just get two of everything Um, uh, well okay but the way
1: those things are managed actually they they they, there's not a sysadmin doing server updates it's all a bit more managed than that. So actually the overheads are much less than they would have been even five years ago with more traditional infrastructure.
0: Yes, but it's not the hardware that's the cost, is my point.
1: Yes, but for a lot of corporations, when you do the cost-benefit analysis of do we need to keep patching against every new speculative execution bug that gets found, and there (laughs) have been like 20 of them, and I'm not even exaggerating, Yeah. or do we just flip one switch... We know exactly how much it will cost us, 50%. You know, we can do the math on that and then we never have to worry about this again. And there actually,
0: are. It's, it's 100%. You keep saying it upside down. Sorry. You, yes. You lose half or it's twice as. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's you actually lose not 100%. quite as
1: bad because hyperthreading doesn't really double things. It just gives you right. up to double in ideal situations.
0: The things that it does, it doubles, but it doesn't do all things. Precisely. Not everything can be done in parallel. Yeah. Um, so th- that's interesting. I wonder whether the cost of, you know, things like uh, Amazon S3 and, and um, Azure and all that might go up just because of this.
1: Well, if it was going to happen, it would have happened because, pe- because the, the approach of just turn off hyper-threading has been, th- that you know, that was last year.
0: So you're saying they've already turned them oh, all yeah. off?
1: Oh, I think when we got into S- Spectre slash Meltdown variant number five or six, a lot of people went, you know something, we've had quite enough of this.
0: <laughs> this was fun, but never mind.
1: Yeah. So, in fact, one of the flavors of BSD, I think it's OpenBSD, the one that's the most security obsessed, sorry, NetBSD. One of the BSDs, their kernel just disables hyper by default. It's like, hmm. this isn't secure anymore. Just turn it off. Because they're just wow. they're security first dist- distro. So that is that is the sledgehammer, right? Just turn off setting, and this all goes away. But you don't need the sledgehammer, is the good news here. Intel have released microcode updates. And again, this was a coordinated release. Uh, so there was a, basically the security researchers responsibly disclosed, they all worked together. So patches were released before the announcement was made about the vulnerability. So the patches are ready to go. So oh, the, good. Like with everything else we've had with these, um, the patches involve new microcode for your CPU. And there's two ways to get microcode into your CPU. You could burn the microcode into the firmware of your motherboard and have your motherboard inject the microcode every time the computer is turned on. Which would mean that every hardware vendor would have to patch every model of every computer and that just won't happen. Or your operating system can inject the new and updated microcode at boot time, when the operating system begins to boot. And that's what we have Hmm. been doing for all of these other speculative execution bugs, and which is why the good news is that last week's macOS update contained these new fixes.
0: And (laughs) this week's (laughs)
1: Windows update on Patch Tuesday contained these fixes for Windows 10 users. Not for Windows Seven users or Windows 8 users, just for Windows 10 users because Hmm. Microsoft I think is working, well Microsoft haven't backported any of these to to the older version of Windows as far as I remember and I think the logic is if you're a major if you're a home user this doesn't really affect you and if you're running a major big cloud you're not running it on Windows 7
0: so this is interesting that this doesn't have to be a firmware update then.
1: Right. Be- is that correct? That is correct, because microcode can be injected at boot time. Hmm. So microcode is it's like the operating system of your CPU. Our CPUs are now so complicated that although we call them hardware, they're actually half hardware, half software. <laughs> and wow. what really happens when you hit the power switch is... That the first thing the motherboard does is it dumps a bunch of microcode into the CPU. And so you could update the firmware of the motherboards to dump newer microcode in. But there's a second opportunity at the point when the operating system is handed control before it does lots and lots of boot process. The very first thing it can do is shove some more microcode in there and then continue with its boot. And so that's how it's been working. Linux, Windows, and macOS have been patching the CPU at boot time.
0: That's fantastic.
1: It's fantastic and scary all at the same time. What about Linux? No, that's what I said. Linux, Windows, and Mac.
0: Okay. I just heard the two. Okay. yeah, Okay. So
1: basically, if you're a Windows 10 user, you're grand. If you're a Mac user, you're grand. So... If, and if you're a home user, you were grand anyway. And right, right. if you're a really, really paranoid user, Apple have actually gone a step further and have um, put up a support article explaining how you can use the terminal on your Mac to disable hyper-threading. They have a giant big warning saying, <laughs> by the by, you will get up to a 50% performance reduction if you do this, but you can do this, and here's how, and it will absolutely nip all of this kind of stuff in the bud. Okay. So I guess if you're huh. running Mac Mini Colo or something, you might care to do something like that. But I do not for one moment suggest that our listeners go around hobbling their machines by 50%, by 100%.
0: Right, right.
1: It's just, it's not. Really, don't set your hair on fire. Patch your Mac, patch your PC. You'll be grand.
0: All right. Okie dokie. Well, uh, well, the other day I I I, uh, I knew I had the Mac the update to do, and I was just like, oh, I don't want to reboot. I just like, you know, okay, I'll let you download it, but I'm not rebooting right now. I've got all this stuff going and all the programming stuff. I don't want to do it and this morning when I came, when I brought my Mac. My Mac looked exactly as it had before, and it said, yeah, I did that update.
1: <laughs> it it power napped it or something.
0: Yeah, I don't, my Mac doesn't sleep anymore. It stopped sleeping like six months ago. It's like a baby that forgot to, how to sleep oh, no. through the night. Oh, yeah, it hasn't slept through the night, and I don't remember how long. I can tell. I get up in the morning, and I touch it, and it's hot.
1: Ooh. Oh, I don't like that. Mm-hmm.
0: Always. Ooh. Always, always, always. I cannot. I have done. I don't know how to make it. Wow.
1: That's, <laughs> that's, how to make it that's a little scary, because I can't be good for it.
0: You wouldn't think. Mm. Yeah. Got any ideas? Anybody? Let me know.
1: <laughs> well, I hope you have AppleCare, because that way if it poops out... Oh,
0: I do, but it's coming up on three years. Ooh. I, they and, and, you know, I've done a clean install, and for a, a couple of weeks it slipped through the night, and then it quit doing that again. Well, but I've got a good idea. Sorry? was it,
1: Maybe it's time to make an Apple's problem before you run out of AppleCare.
0: Yeah, maybe... I just know they're gonna say sign out of iCloud. <laughs> that's what always stops me. <laughs> that is the universal that, answer, isn't it? Right, and that's three weeks for me every oh, time. And actually, actually my yeah, my photo library has only got bigger since the last time I did it. Um, I did get an interesting idea today, though. Uh, David Sparks has uh, is about to release his Keyboard Maestro uh, m- uh, field guide, and I mm. started watching it. I got a pre-release copy, <gasps> and uh, and he he said in there you can have it do actions when the computer wakes up. Right. So I'm going to try put my computer a- a- asleep, and then when it wakes up, do something. You know, like Bing. figure out a script that says. Well, I don't want it to wake me up, but a script that says, you know, uh, take a screenshot or so, you know, Mail do, me figure other, out yeah. what the heck is, yeah, what is running. Anyway.
1: Uh, yeah, interesting. Maybe the output at top into an email or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing.
1: Interesting. Hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so unless right. you have any more questions, we have one more medium for you. Oh, goody. So, security media number three is Android Q security enhancement. So, we talked a few weeks ago. Now, we had a big detailed discussion that you mentioned at the top of the show about Google's annual report on the state of Android, and basically, we were saying that their trajectory was definitely in the right direction. They were, we knew there were f- issues with the way they initially designed the OS, and particularly the way they initially did, Sort of architected how updates would go out, but that they were mm-hmm. working to address all the problems in very sensible ways, and that while it may not be perfect, we liked the direction of travel very much. Sort of where we came to, right, right. And the TLDR version here is that that direction of travel is continuing with Android Q. There, there is no; they have not changed their direction of movement, and I don't think they've slowed down. Maybe they've sped up a little. So I think one of the coolest things I think they've done is they're continuing this trend of taking more and more of the operating system and encapsulating it inside Google Play services. And the reason they're doing that is because everything that's in Google Play services is directly updated by Google without any middlemen in the way.
0: And right. so the more, that's what's making a big difference, right?
1: Yeah. So the more of the OS they can pull into Google Play services, the more they get to bypass the Huawei's and the Samsungs and the AT and Ts and because you had two layers of middlemen, right? You had hardware vendors and then cell carriers. And so right. the more they pull into into Google Play services, the more they can directly control it, and therefore the more we have an Apple style model where the, the security update just comes to you. And it doesn't matter what model you have, and it doesn't matter who your carrier is, and it doesn't matter what country you're in, you just get the security update. And that's where we want to get to. And they're never going to get the whole OS there because you have all of these different vendors, right? The, the drivers and the hardware stuff then has to still be in the control of the people making the hardware. So they're never going to get to a fully iOS model, but they're getting so, they're continuing to take more and more and more and bringing it into directly updatable and securable format. And some of the stuff they're now pulling into this mechanism includes some of the really big hitters for vulnerabilities, like um, the media services component that gave us so, so many really nasty bugs is now encapsulated in there and very heavily sandboxed, actually. Because a lot of those hacks we would have been talking about two, three years ago would have been, oh, if someone, you know, emails you a JPEG file, they can hack your phone completely. And that was because the media management <laughs> right. stuff was sitting in the kernel with full root privileges and as soon as you got it to run arbitrary code, well, hey, presso, you've owned the phone. Well, now that's sandboxed to the high heavens and is part of Google Play Services, so it can be patched by Google directly without any middle people. And they've taken it even further this time. Nice. So okay. they've broken up these chunks of the OS so that it's actually possible for them to be updated without having to reboot your phone. Oh, really? Now, this isn't true of everything in the OS. So there are still going to be some OS updates that are going to need a reboot. But a whole bunch of stuff that used to need a reboot doesn't need a reboot anymore because they've compartmentalized it. And effectively, they're behaving like apps now. And so Google can patch them without rebooting the phone. And directly. Uh, Very cool. I'm really impressed. Uh some other highlights then, mandatory disk encryption. It is a true fact that if a device, be it a phone, a tablet, a wearable, even an Android Android Auto, if it's running Android Q, your user data will be on an encrypted partition. That is just that is the rules of the road in Android Q. User data is oh, encrypted. Excellent. So that's excellent. great. They've also spent a bunch of time improving the OS level support for biometrics, including improved APIs and stuff to allow the developer to allow developers of apps to basically make better use of facial recognition, fingerprints, that kind of stuff. So they basically improve the OS's support for that, so that you can get more security with less hassle. Um, One thing that I particularly caught my eye is the API allows the developer of the app to decide whether just facial recognition is okay. Or whether it's facial recognition plus an acknowledgement. So for some things like a credit card purchase, you probably want an a proactive acknowledgement. So uh, the way Apple implement that is if they if you're, they take your money, they make you double tap the lock button as to to approve as well as Face ID. Google's right, API right. says you know you can support a button or whatever, but basically the thing is you can make it so that if it's going to involve something really critical that they have to proactively do something, just recognizing their face is not sufficient. So waving someone's phone in front of their face won't approve, say, a payment. But, you know, So just thinking, thinking mm-hmm. ahead in terms of how they're writing these APIs, what tools they're making available to developers so that they can make more use of these security features in-app, not just in OS. Again, mm-hmm. Apple are also doing this kind of stuff. So I'm not saying this is Google being unique, but it's still...
0: No, no. Progress. But, and
1: that's what we want. Progress. It doesn't matter if it's the same progress as someone else has done. It's still better. And better is better.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I wasn't thinking along those lines at all of, well, Apple already does that. We're done with saying that.
1: Good. Yeah. I've been <laughs> doing that for quite some time. But I, I guess I was saying that right. for the listeners more than for you because I'm pretty sure I, I knew you were on that page.
0: Yeah. It was actually Chris Ashley of the SMR podcast who just said, okay, quit it. Yeah. Everybody, we're done. It's not a risk. If, if Apple comes out with something that Google already did, so what? That's just because it's good. So shut up. <laughs> it's like, okay, good. Glad we know we're all on the same page. We're done with that.
1: Yeah. And when it comes to security stuff, I will not quibble with that argument at all. If it comes to like stylistic stuff where it's like... You could have implemented the idea, but did you really have to copy the exact icon and stuff? Like some of the stuff that that, that happened in the past, I would still quibble with. But in terms of security, I am never, ever, ever going to quibble. If Google do something cool in security and Apple copy it, I will go, thank you very much. And if Apple do something cool in security and Google copy it, I will say, thank you very much.
0: Yeah, it's the only way to go.
1: And then the other thing they're doing, they're putting a lot of effort into is very low level, very geeky pro hardening of the os is sort of what we call it in in the it world basically making the os detect and stomp on a whole bunches of common types of vulnerabilities so maybe the developer accidentally drops you know overflows a stack or something but the os is like no no i recognize what's going on here and i'm just going to nip that in the bud and it's it's very, very nerdy stuff, and there's a link in the show notes to a detailed post describing it. But basically, these are all really good things to do. This is good computer science, and hardening the OS is absolutely the best thing to do because humans write code, humans make mistakes, code will have mistakes. So the more the OS does to harden itself, the better.
0: Good, good. That's excellent.
1: It is all excellent, but I do want to add... The same caveat here that we added last time we talked about Facebook. Just like it is really good that Facebook are adding end to end encryption, it is really good that Google are hardening Android in all these ways. This right? in no way changes the fundamental business model of Google. It is still, as I describe it, freepy, free in exchange for personal information. So mm-hmm. It's not free as in no cost. It's free as in no financial cost. You know, it's it's an OS that anyone can just pop on their devices. But it's still paid for, right? Google as a company are not becoming a charity. So this is really positive, but don't assume that this means that there is no difference between the different big players here. There are multiple business models and they have implications. And those implications remain in place, right? You know,
0: here's a way to look at it, Bart, is um, (laughs) if we would like to put on our our completely tinfoil hat, um, if you're Google, that that information about you is really, really valuable. So if they lock down the operating system so that it's less vulnerable to malware, that means they get to keep all the information that they're selling.
1: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. That (laughs) is is completely true. And it's also the case that the reputational damage of losing it is huge. Google have gotten quite lucky this year that Facebook have just dropped the ball so badly so often. Because technically speaking, Google record one of those VPN apps just like Facebook were. I mean, there have been quite a few Google being naughty stories as well, but Google were just naughty at a normal level. (laughs) Facebook were naughty (laughs) so flagrantly, they got all the press.
0: Right, right.
1: You know, and Sundar Pichai made a a speech at at the conference. Remind people of who he is? He is the CEO of Google these days, because Google is now a child company of Alphabet. So the big names you remember are running Alphabet and Sundar Pichai, who used to just head up a section within Google, is now heading up the Google section of Alphabet. And like Mark Zuckerberg's recent keynote at the the Facebook conference, it was privacy, 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 privacy. But again, that doesn't actually change the business model. So, mm-hmm. Sunreport tried to had a go at companies for making privacy a luxury. But my argument is that's only true if you own if you consider personal information to have zero value. But Google knows personal information has value. It is literally the foundation of their business. So it is deeply disingenuous to pretend that personal information is valueless. And that's what his argument right, boils right. down to. And I just don't buy it, is basically what it boils down to. You know, nice try, no. (laughs) So anyway, lots of links in the show notes. So there's a whole bunch of stuff on Android developer blog, if you want to get nerdy about it. If you want to have someone else tell you about it, then the latest episode of Security Now, the, the main topic they call it a main topic, which is hilarious. It's a two and a half hour show or, or, you know, a one and a half to two hour show. And the main topic is never more than 30 minutes. And it's always at the <laughs> oh, end. Really?
0: Oh, that's funny. So if you fast it's, forward so to almost all
1: of Security Now being over, you will get the discussion of Android Q, where Steve and Leo dive into a whole bunch of the hardening stuff I sort of yada yada over in much more nerdy, fun detail. Yeah. Um, and you know Steve is good at explaining these things. So if you'd prefer to hear someone explain it to you instead of try read it and try to make sense of it, then that is definitely a way to go. Uh, and then there are also um, threat Posts have a nice summary that I linked to, and uh, Computer World actually have a really good opinion piece on the whole privacy is not a luxury thing.
0: To be honest, you know, same I, I... same
1: opinions I have, just expressed by someone who can write.
0: <laughs> like you can um so i i really like steve gibson he's a a lovely man i've met him in person and i think he's brilliant and i trust everything he says but his voice just puts me into a coma i've tried listening while i'm running and i start falling asleep yeah i just just, it's like it's like a like the drone of a highway going on to me i can't i i just can't listen i'd love to
1: that's a pity because i he's on my weekly to listen list And thankfully, because he drones on, Leo gets to say very little.
0: Oh, okay. So it has that advantage. It has that advantage, yeah. (laughs) But still two and a half hours, Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. 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 It's a good thing it's a weekly podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Well, if I listen to that, then I wouldn't get as much out of listening to you. So this this is more fun to me.
1: And in fairness, Steve is targeting a different audience, right?
0: Right, right.
1: Okay, so that is our mediums consumed. It's quite meaty. Yeah. So notable security updates. Um, Google have released their May 2019 Android security update. So if you have an Android device, patchy, patchy, patch, patch, and again, more and more. If it can be patched. Sorry.
0: If it, I said if it can be pitched. uh, Patched.
1: If it can be, but again, more and more is coming through that Google Play services. So Mm. even if you can't get everything, you can probably say get something. Hmm. So, you know, like I say, they're designing it better. So,
0: yeah, I wonder how you can tell because the Android phone I have now is is too old to get the operating system update. So would I would it say, hey, but I have these other updates. Would you like these? I I don't know. And the
1: thing is, the extra stuff in being bundled into play services is relatively new. So if your OS isn't relatively new, you don't have this. So I guess it's a case of everyone buying a phone today is way better off than people who bought a phone a year ago, two years ago. Right. And they're going to get to stay more secure. But there's a lot of grandfathered in not so good stuff. But that's all going to go away through attrition,
0: thankfully. Right.
1: Apple have patched almost everything iOS 12.3, macOS 10.14.5, and Security Update 2019.003 for High Sierra and Sierra. WatchOS 5.21, tvOS one two three, and Safari 12.11. <laughs> patchy, patchy, patch, patch. They're, they're all all of those patch important. In fact, some of them patch quite scary security vulnerabilities. So patch, patch, patch. It has been Patch Tuesday. So that means Microsoft and Adobe patched pretty much everything under the sun. So the that's not the bit I want to dwell on, right? Patchy, patchy, patch, patch. The bit I want to mention is that there was a surprise. Microsoft have patched a, quote, potentially wormable vulnerability in versions of Windows that predate Windows 10. And Windows 8. In other words, oh. Windows XP and Windows 7 and Windows Server 2003. And they I have, thought
0: they discontinued patching those.
1: They have. But since this huh. is potentially wormable, uh. they have given an extraordinary patch for those hmm. officially obsolete operating systems. Wow. That is very...
0: That's a terrible phrase. I wish that didn't exist in our world. Potentially wormable.
1: Blah. Well, it should make you go blah. So it's pretty good.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's, it's, it's a very, um, what's the phrase? They're being a responsible netizen by patching this. Mm -hmm. So basically what remote potentially wormable means is that machines that are not patched can be infected remotely without user interaction. In other words, just having the machine be on the internet is enough to get it hacked, at which point it will try to hack everything else. So it will be very dangerous for planet Earth if Microsoft didn't issue a patch for this. Yeah. Now they could get away by saying, but we don't support this OS. Anyone using it is is you know, is is taking an absolutely unacceptable risk and blame the user. And they would not be wrong. But it is definitely better for society that they do this. So I am happy they do this and I want to give them a pat on the back for doing it because there's no financial them to do this.
0: Right. Right. That's great. That's great. I mean, who would have seen that coming? I hope that doesn't make people complacent and say, Oh, see, it's fine. I don't need to. They're doing all the updates still. I think we've
1: passed that stage. I think.
0: (laughs) I hope. Yeah, I I love how you overestimate the intelligence of humans. You do that all the time. It's so cute.
1: Maybe we're getting to the stage where the computer, the magic smoke is going to come out of all of those XP machines soon, and that'll be that. Yeah. Problem solved. Um, (laughs) The last one then, Right, there is a remote code execution bug in the Linux kernel. It has been patched. Now, this is a strange one. If an attacker succeeds in exploiting this bug, it is immensely powerful because it is remotely, it's remote arbitrary code execution with kernel level privileges. So it's actually like root only a little bit better because it's actually the kernel. So that's like as total of ownage as you can possibly get. So that sounds really, really, really bad. On the other hand, it's almost impossible to actually exploit this bug. So if you could, it'd be amazing, but you probably can't. (laughs) However, it has been patched, so why run the risk? And the other thing, of course, is attacks never get worse, they only get better. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. And one other silver lining, well, it's really convenient for me, This is in an opt in in a part of the kernel that not every OS uses because it's optional. It's it's a particular protocol, and so when I went to the Red Hat page to see how bad things were going to be for me this week, it basically had next to every version of Red Hat that's currently supported, not affected, not affected, not affected, not affected, the whole way down the table. Oh wow! Great, thank you very much. Problem solved. So anyway, okay. it's it it got a lot of media because it's such a dangerous bug, but it's really hard to exploit, so no need to panic.
0: Sort of so like getting struck by lightning's really bad, but your chances are pretty low? That is a
1: pretty good analogy, yeah. Notable news. Uh there's a fire extinguisher icon here. Evil Clippy made lots of news. <laughs> this is really cool. Some security researchers found a novel and interesting way. To use office macros to sneak bad stuff by AV. Oh. Now, the way this was being reported was basically, oh, this makes it impossible for AV to detect these things. No, it's just the way that they weren't looking for before, but they are now. And again... The absolute simplest advice here, which is advice we have been giving for years, still holds. When Word says, would you like to enable macros, the answer is no. If you receive on, a document...
0: You can, I assume you can do it on a document-by-document document basis, because yeah. there's a lot of reasons to use macros.
1: Right, if you... Okay, so, sorry, let me, let me clarify If you get something in email or download something from the web and you double-click it and the first thing that Excel or Word says to you is would you like to enable macros, the answer is no. It probably won't even ask you if it's a document you created and opened from your own C drive. Okay. Pretty sure Office is smart enough to to not ask you when you open your own stuff. But if you, like we've been saying for years, if you get some some random thing emailed to you or something you downloaded from the web and it asks for macros, the answer is no. Because macros is a fancy word for saying running someone else's code. You don't want to run someone Um, else's code if you don't know who someone else is.
0: Right. It doesn't mean all code you get from someone else is bad.
1: No, but unless you know them, you must assume so, right? So if you're working in an organization and you are handed some stuff by HR that uses macros because, well, there's a reason to. That's completely different to I went and Googled something and got something with a macro and ran yes. it. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah. Gotcha.
1: It's it's trust. Basically, it comes down to trust, right? Macros are neither good nor bad. They're like a hammer. You can hammer nails or skulls, right? Guy wearing a hockey mask <laughs> with a hammer? Not good. Guy with nails between his teeth because that's where he keeps them because he's a carpenter? That's fine. He can use a hammer. Not sure that's the best analogy, but you get what I'm saying.
0: (laughs) I like it. Now I'll remember that.
1: There we go. Uh, Facebook filed a lawsuit against a company called RankWave. And as a result, we now know that RankWave are pretty much the next Cambridge Analytica. Um, I guess it's slightly better that we learn about it from Facebook as opposed to learning about it from the press. But only marginally Uh, Facebook are suing the company for abusing its terms of service uh, and collecting large amounts of data through at least 30 apps and then selling it to micro-target people so that they can be effectively influenced Uh, and they were doing it since 2010 and they continued (laughs) to do it until 2018 so on the one hand yay Facebook found it first and Facebook are doing something about it first on the other hand
0: 8 years um, I believe that's nine. nine Oh, eight, eight years from
1: 2010 to 2018 Yeah So, yeah And the more you read about the story Facebook were like, yeah, you're using our terms of service And they were like, yeah, yeah, we're grand And Facebook were like, do you want to prove it to us? And we're like, no we don't and Facebook were like, I really wish you would prove it to us And it took Facebook an awful, awful long time To to actually throw the book at these guys It It just It could be worse yeah, but it could be better. <laughs> okay, so now we come to the flip in the news where we go from bad news to good news. Um, Microsoft have achieved FIDO 2 certification for Windows Hello. Basically, Ooh. what this means is that hardware security tokens like the YubiKey can fully replace passwords on Windows 10, is what this means.
0: Can now?
1: Yeah, so Windows Hello can use can use those tokens as not as a second here. factor but as the actual authentication.
0: Wow. We we don't have time this week to talk about it, but I need you to explain FIDO again.
1: And I'm going to need to read it I, again. I know I explained <laughs> it to you once, okay. and I know I understood <laughs> it when I did that.
0: we just dust off the old notes. They're probably still good. Just have you read them to me again.
1: We, we Indeed, we should do that. Yeah, because FIDO2 has gone from being hypothetical to really quite real. So it's probably good timing, actually. Yeah.
0: Okay, good, good. Uh, A
1: rare bit of good news when it comes to social media giants. Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Twitter and Facebook have teamed up to fight online extremism. Uh, The grouping is being dubbed or has dubbed itself Christchurch Call in honour of the victims Mm -hmm. of the terrorist attacks in Christchurch, New Zealand, a month ago. Uh, And as well as announcing the fact that they exist as a group that are going to work together, they also released a nine-point plan in a joint statement. And there's a link to the actual PDF, which is, you know, kind of interesting. So their nine-point plan is broken into what they call five individual actions. And it's where they basically say, we commit to, so we commit to updating our terms of use, community standards, code of conduct and acceptable uses policies to expressly prohibit the distribution of terrorist and violent extremist content. User reporting of terrorist and violence extreme content. We commit to establishing one or more methods within our online platforms and services for users to report or flag inappropriate content. We commit to continuing to invest in technology that improves our capability to detect and remove terrorist and violent content. We commit to identifying appropriate checks on live streaming aimed at reducing the risk of disseminating terrorist and violent extremist content online. We commit to publishing on a regular basis transparency reports regarding detection and removal of terrorist or violent content. So they're kind of very, very summarized versions of the five individual actions. And then they also promise four collaborative actions. We commit to work collaboratively across industry, government, education institutions, and NGOs to develop shared understanding of the context in which terrorist and violent extremist content is published and to improve technology to detect and remove terrorist and violent
0: Oh, that's good. I like that. That's the best I've read there.
1: Yeah. We commit to working collaboratively across industry, governments, blah, 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 to create a protocol for responding to emerging or active events on an urgent basis. In other words, we are going to put together an agreed process for when the bleep hits the spinny thing. Mm -hmm. We commit to working collaboratively across, you get the idea, uh, to help understand and educate the public about terrorist and extremist violent content online. Uh, And then we commit to working collaboratively To attack the root causes of extremism and hate online. This includes providing greater support for relevant research with an emphasis on the impact of online hate on offline discrimination and violence. In other words, we're going to make our data available to researchers who are actually trying to figure this stuff out. Hmm. So on the one hand, you can say, well, it's easy to commit and stuff. But on the other hand, they've nailed their colours to the mast here. This is not a long document. The whole thing, including preamble, is three pages of really quite large type. It's and that's
0: Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Twitter?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Joint statement. Huh. So, you
0: know. This what about Microsoft's in there? And Amazon, Facebook and Twitter are the center of this.
1: Yeah. If what you're a large Amazon cloud provider, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff happens on your cloud.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think whether I'm annoyed that Apple's not in there. Apple have. I'm trying to think what what do the five have in common that would make it not be something Apple would have joined.
1: I I don't know if there's much given that Apple Apple are not like Apple they don't do hosts social. their own stuff, but they are not a cloud provider. There is no equivalent of Azure or AWS on Apple's platform.
0: Right, and they don't app- do any social network stuff. Every time they try to, they they stink at it. I was just going
1: to say, technically speaking, they tried once or twice. Twice, I believe. And it it, it was so terrible, you really couldn't call it social networking because there was no one there and they weren't networking. (laughs) So I think that's why they're not on the list. They're just, they're not a, they're not part of the problem in this case. So I I don't think we should be cranky. Anything
0: anybody's doing is, that's a good thing.
1: Yeah. So I, I was really pleased, and there's already been some concrete stuff out of this. Facebook have updated their policy on live streaming. Basically, it's gone to a one-strike system. If you mess up on live streaming, oh, you just get blocked immediately.
0: I did hear about that. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Uh, you know, because there used to be a three-strike system. But I think getting away with two live stream terrorist attacks is probably too, too many. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway. All right. So that is, you know, it's nice to be able to end on, on that positive note before we go into suggested reading. Um no PSAs, tips or advice this week. That's unusual. Mm. Quite a few privacy breaches and stuff, but I don't think any of them are quite worthy of us digging too deeply into. I I think it's a case of if these apply to you, read the stories in the show notes. So Freedom Mobile leaked a lot of data. They are apparently a fairly substantial cell phone carrier in Canada.
0: Oh, yeah, you have these all marked with their little flags.
1: I do have them marked with little flags. Because a lot of these are country-specific. India. India is next. Mm-hmm. We have another one of these mystery databases. So the last time it was a database with, like, half the American population exposed. Now it's a similar database with 275 million Indian citizens' data exposed. Basically, someone bought a database on the cloud, filled it with important data, and forgot to lock the door. And then a particularly nasty one from the UK, um, panic alarms for the elderly, at least 10,000 of them. Basically, these are IoT devices in effect. In the worst possible way, whoever built these devices and sold them to these UK citizens, probably through the NHS, if memory serves, they just didn't bother with security. And so you can take... These devices have GPS sensors they have speakers and microphones and they have an always-on-internet connection because they're connected to the cellular network and all you have to do to take these things over is send them an SMS message. <laughs> uh, how freaked out would you be if your panic alarm started saying nasty things to you? Let alone started spying on you and stuff. I mean, it, it's horrific that something with so much power and a GPS chip, for goodness sake, would be so badly secured. It's not so we don't know that, that that's happy.
0: been exploited we just know it could be right
1: yeah so basically what they found is that these 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 devices are just not secure that, that it's
0: okay but anybody if anybody's looking for an invitation to for a special spot in hell that's the yes that we're gonna do Yeah, that, th- right?
1: th- this would be the fast lane <laughs> so that's what are trying to get to uh there's mm-hmm. a few other things in there but amazon alexa sort of The interface that deletes your voice recordings is very specific. Mm -hmm. It does exactly what it says on the tin and no more. It deletes the voice recording, not the transcript. They keep that. (laughs) And Twitter had a wee bug that accidentally leaked your location data to a trusted third party. I don't think this one's actually too bad as these things go.
0: And that was on iOS, you said.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's basically a bug in the app. That was sharing data it shouldn't have been sharing, but it was sharing it with basically a service provider to to Twitter, not sharing it to some random pleb on the. It's not appropriate, but it's not catastrophic, as far as I can tell. A bug, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, not malicious. Uh, In terms of news, I have a few of these starred. So we have talked quite a few times that browsers really are the front line of security these days, and. Browser plugins are a particular place where attackers are focusing their attention. Like when we started this segment many, many moons ago, it was all about the PDF readers. That's where all the bad right, guys were attacking right. because that was such a juicy target. Well, now browser plugins are in the line of fire. And so the browser vendors are all working to, to shore up the defenses there. And none of these stories are like earth shattering, but they're all, they're all just good ideas. So Firefox have joined Google in banning a technique called obfuscation in the code for browser plugins. So obfuscation is a technique you use to make code difficult for humans to understand. And it's a way of protecting your intellectual property or a way of seeking malware in. And Firefox and Google have basically said, don't care if it has legitimate uses, you're not putting any of it into our browsers.
0: Oh, nice.
1: Yeah. Also, this summer, which is why it's here in Suggested Reading, we'll talk about it in detail when it becomes real. But if nothing changes, Google are about to really lock, or to make a significant step towards locking down third-party cookies in Chrome by implementing something the Internet Engineering Task Force have recommended called same site policies. It's a a new header, a new HTTP header, since we know all about those now. And it's going to control the use of third-party cookies, and it's interesting, actually. But I said, we'll talk about it in detail when it becomes real instead of planned. Um And again, in that same category, Google Chrome have a very sensible and cool idea that everyone better steal to stop websites <laughs> hijacking the back button. I don't know if you've noticed this, that it is possible sometimes that when you hit back, you don't actually go back because the website has played I shenanigans. I have noticed
0: that. I just, yeah, I, I hate that.
1: And you're right to hate it. And Google, Google, going, did they I have not click? Fix.
0: Oh, good.
1: So when that becomes real and not hypothetical, we're definitely going to talk about it because it's really cool how they're doing it. And then the last one I have a star on here in the news section, probably because a it's just all bad news, and b uh, it's kind of a yeah, we kind of know this. Basically. Particularly the cheaper end phones, the cheaper end Android phones, they're absolutely riddled with bloatware because that's one of the ways they're financed. The reason that you're paying almost nothing for a device that costs a lot of money to physically make is because someone has paid the vendor to stuff it full of bloatware.
0: That study is like oxygen found in air. I know, that's why it's (laughs) down
1: here under suggested reading. I really couldn't be bothered having a detailed discussion about the the blindingly obvious. But if you want to have a read of some numbers about the blindingly obvious, there they are. Um, in terms of opinion and analysis, I there's there's three stories here, and all three of them have a story because they're all fantastic articles. I'm not going to dwell on them because they're just way better written than I could ever talk about them. So I would just say, if these are of interest to you, have a read. Um, The first one is from Vice. How hackers and scammers break into iCloud-locked phones. And the answer is they don't break iCloud, they break the humans. This can involve all sorts of horrible things like holding people up at gunpoint to tricking them into giving up their iCloud password or whatever. But basically, because of activation lock, if you steal someone's phone, it's useless to you unless you also get them to give you or somehow steal their iCloud credentials. And scammers are beginning to find ways of doing that. And if you're curious about how they're doing it, and as I say, it ranges from violence to trickery, Vice have it, but if you think this is a story about software vulnerabilities, it absolutely is not. The system isn't vulnerable, the humans are being attacked. Uh, The New York Times then published an extremely interesting op-ed by a chap called Chris Hughes, who you probably haven't heard of, but he's actually one of the very, very early Facebook funders. And he was with Facebook for a long time, but he left them a few years ago when it became clear to him that Facebook was on the wrong path and that every time he tried, he sort of, he assumed that Carol Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg just didn't realise what was going on, that all he had to do was explain to them the problem and they would immediately correct course. <laughs> he was abused of that notion quite quickly and sodded it off and has now become an extremely vocal and articulate critic of Facebook. If you like reading, the New York Times article is a good read. If you like listening, he did a really good interview with Kara Swisher on her Recode Decode podcast. So for audio people, the link is in the show notes to that episode of Recode Decode. And for people who like to read, the link is to the New York Times. And then the last one I have started here is is kind of similar to the one I started last week, um, but uh, about what's going on, how Twitter are working desperately hard to try and make Twitter less toxic. A similar but different story from BuzzFeed this week. It's behind Twitter's plan to get people to stop yelling at each other is the title they put on it. But basically, Twitter have a test version of Twitter where they test ideas, which is sort of semi-public, which is basically Twitter with all the vowels taken out. And the BuzzFeed story sort of goes through what it is, why it exists, and basically look at how they're using it to try to detoxify real Twitter.
0: Can they just take out capital letters? <laughs> <laughs>
1: that will stop the screaming, I guess, but yeah, that, that's all that It is.
0: won't sound like screaming.
1: Yeah. Uh what was it? Yeah, I I could mute you by taking off your cap lock key. <laughs> uh palette cleansing, then after all of that. Um these
0: oh, can I sneak in can oh, I sure. sneak in a good news story before we uh oh, yeah, before we absolutely. close out? I don't know if you saw this. I posted it on our Slack group, podfee.com/slash Slack. I got a marketing email from a company called BigDataMarkTech.com, mm-hmm. and it was very curious. It was titled, entitled, Acquire End Users of LastPass for Your Marketing. It said, Hi, the best way to increase your revenue is to contact end users of LastPass, whom you can sell your products and services. We have a validated contact database of email, phone, and social information, which you can use for your marketing campaigns. Beep. Yeah, I didn't like that.
1: Sounds bad, doesn't so it? If, yeah, and I did read this, yeah, by the way. Yeah, it sounds terrible. Okay, good.
0: So I wrote, I found the press uh, email address for uh, Log Me In, which is the owners of, of LastPass, yeah. and I sent to them and and said... So um, I hope I shouldn't be alarmed by this, but I thought maybe you guys would want to know about it. Hmm. So my little friend, uh, Lauren Christofferson, uh, responded right away and said, thank you for sharing this. And then she wrote back. uh, She wrote back the first time, like in, I don't know, maybe a half an hour. And the second time was maybe two hours later. She said, thanks again for sharing this with us. I wanted to close the loop and let you know that our security operations team has confirmed this information was not gathered from our systems, but rather is a very common type of spam and reflects well-known products uh, and affects well-known products. After digging on some of these providers, quote unquote, in the past, they found that most of these lists come from other spam surveys, et cetera, where users unknowingly opt in to receive additional news and information about a particular company or product. Other so words, what I liked about was she took it seriously. She sent it by their security, got me a response, and wrote back right away. And I, I told her, man, good on all fronts.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, if you put stuff online and ask people, do you use LastPass? Yes or no, and they click yes. Well, now you just built up a list of people who use LastPass that you can now sell to people unscrupulously.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's a good point.
1: Yeah. No, no. I say it was good to hear. I mean, you know. He, I happen to be a very happy 1Password user, but I know that there are two big players who are both brilliant, and they are 1Password and LastPass. Yeah, yeah. So it's great that it's great that we have two strong players in that field, keeping each other on their toes and, you know, competing with each other. Just makes it better for everyone. Okay, so my Palo cleansers are entirely audio-based. Um, oh, okay. The first one is just for you, Alison. Well, not just for you, but... <laughs> The fact that you're here is why I thought this was worth putting in this show. Uh, There is a a podcast I adore called 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, and it's basically about inventions. And they're Mm. not always the obvious ones. Like, yes, it does include the credit card, but also the Harbour-Bosch process for fixing nitrogen from the air into fertilizer, without which the modern Mm. world could not exist. But anyway, this week's episode caught my ear a little bit. Spreadsheets. (laughs) (laughs) the history of spreadsheets and from there an extremely interesting discussion on the relationship between humans and robots and what the future holds for automation what is automatable, what isn't automatable the good, the bad fascinating to come out of a discussion on spreadsheets and also short, they're all little 15 minute episodes so 50 things that made the modern economy I will recommend the entire podcast are into season 2 which means it technically should be renamed 100 things and they had some bonus episodes, so technically it's 102 things. Um, but anyway, I recommend the whole series, but the Spreadsheets episode is a really good jumping off point.
0: Wait, did you say five zero or 1-5? 5-0. Five, five uh, minute, minutes, minutes long.
1: Oh no, minutes long 1-5. They're like 10-15 minute short episodes.
0: Oh, neat. Yeah,
1: they're nice little bite-sized that chunks actually. Fun. They're, they're, they're good fun. And as I say, I love the entire first season, like the shipping container and all these kind of things you'd never think of. It's, it's, it's <laughs> by one of my favourite um, British BBC World broadcasters, Tim Harford. He He's an economist, but he's an interesting and fascinating human being. Um, which is not always a common combination, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, he, he, it's highly recommended. And then the second one is also a podcast, but this one... This is one to get you hooked. It's a new series by BBC World. It's a 12-part podcast story, effectively. Extremely high production value. Um, I just may as well just get it out there. Um, This is such high production value, it has a soundtrack by a guy you might have heard of called Hans Zimmer
0: that would be a music reference so no what well, movie's but, okay.
1: reference you may have heard some of his work in like you know big movies like gladiator and i think he was involved in a bunch of the lord oh, of the rings okay. and he's as big as as john williams
0: oh okay huge so name i don't think i don't think you said the subject of the podcast speak, yet i'm I, reading I it i
1: intentionally didn't because i want to actually tell this properly so oh okay it's right really high production values let's just take that and put it aside it's A retelling of the story of the Apollo moon landings, but in a way I've never heard it told before, which is Mm. impressive given how long ago that happened and how many times that story's been told. It's called 13 minutes to the moon because the, the thing the whole 12 part series is hung on is the fact that those, that moon landing, those 13 minutes to get to the surface, pretty much everything went wrong. And they were within seconds of aborting pretty much the entire way down. And when you listen to the recordings, it's just error after error after error, problem after problem. They were, they were like seconds away from running out of fuel and crashing into splattering themselves in the moon. Like it, it was absolute chaos. We've forgotten all about it because they got there and they got home within the decade right. safely back to Earth. The whole thing Kennedy wanted. So the whole 12 part series tells the story from the point of view of those 13 Minutes to the Moon, which is why the name of the series is 13 Minutes to the Moon. But they rewind all the way back to the start, and every voice you hear on that recording, you get to hear who they are, what they are. And so you end up with the whole story being coloured in, but starting with the voices on the tapes.
0: You know, With the originals.
1: Yeah, so we all the, know yeah. Buzz Aldrin's voice, you know, you, the eagle has landed which we think of as the first thing on the moon, but actually it was contact was the first thing from the moon. But, you know, you you hear, you know, you got a bunch of guys about here about to turn blue, all that kind of stuff. Like all of the other people on that tape, you they're all real human beings and you get to hear all of them. They're interviewed. The human story of how hard that was comes out of this podcast and it's really well spun together story using those last 13 minutes as the hook. With really high production I've, I've, values. So, I'm
0: so excited by how much stuff has come out about the moon landing uh, on the 50th anniversary and all. Like the uh, that documentary that came out that is all the real footage. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to see that yet or if it's gotten out there.
1: I haven't it's, seen it, but I I, I know that I, I have heard quite a few interviews with people. That, like I know that the entire archive of all the tapes has been released and... There's so much
0: yeah so th- this documentary is it's it's a a it's told like a story except every single bit of footage you see is the real footage it's nothing is faked it's all it comes off like a like a, a, a incredible drama and yet it's just the real footage and it's the real voices everything you hear is original every single thing in it it's wow. just a tremendous job of cutting and it's I was on the edge of my seat during the 13 minutes to the moon. I mean, well, It was just uh, it was terrifying. Yeah.
1: And it was it was a drama. There was no need for fictionalization
0: <laughs> It was quite dramatic. Yeah. Right, right. Well very cool. I have just added both of those to my, uh, my podcast list here.
1: Excellent. My mission My mission is complete.:
0: All right. well, this has been fun.
1: Yeah, my, my pleasure. Um, and uh, you know, of course, what I'm going to say. Until next time. Stay patched. Stay secure.
0: Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at Allison at podfeet.com, and you can follow me at podfeet. Don't forget that you're going to get a whole bunch of those podfeet presses this week. I'm sorry about that. Nothing I can do, but uh, hey, you'll know I'm there and that I love you. Remember, everything you care about starts with podfeet.com slash something, like podfeet.com slash Patreon, like Klaus. You can join our Facebook group at podfee.com slash Facebook. You can join our Slack community at podfee.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, like Steve Davidson did for the first time since we moved to Discord, head on over to podfee.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Docilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.